In the movie Saving Private Ryan, we see the storming of Normandy Beach by the 29th Infantry Division and the 2nd and 5th Rangers. As movie scenes go, it's brutal. From the moment the troop carries open their doors, American soldiers are dying. Bullets ricochet off metal. The Allies charge past the anti-tank barricades as machine guns rip through the sand. They hunker under the sand dunes. And that's when we get the turning point. Our plucky heroes begin grenading the bunkers, creating smoke screens. Allied soldiers adapt, overcome, and retake the beach by burning the Nazis out of the Omaha bunkers. And that's where the invasion ends. The D-Day siege is over. The movie goes off in a new direction. For the next two and a half hours, we're searching for a missing private miles away in the French town of Rommel. A town which, by the way, is totally made up. Rommel was invented so the movie could have its dramatic final battle a few days after Normandy Beach in a place that didn't exist. Which is a shame because we missed a lot of the real action that took place after the landing. In reality, the push inland continued for nearly a week. The Germans weren't fleeing from Tom Hanks and his rifle company. They were running from the non-stop shelling. Fun fact, according to J. Ellis' data book of World War II, around 75% of all casualties were from motors and bombs, not bullets. In movies, motors are the background noise while men with rifles do the real fighting. In reality, rifles merely keep the enemy pinned down while artillery does the killing. If the camera was somehow forced to give the equal screen time to everyone at the battle, most of it would have been on the ships, not on the fictional town. Our story would be about the seven US and British battleships that kept the Germans on the run with wave upon wave of 14 and 15 inch shells for 11 straight days. The USS Texas in particular rained so many shells on the fleeing Germans, it spent weeks worth of ammo in the first 35 minutes of the landing. The Texas even left to reload at the nearest port before coming back to put more craters into the French landscape. What would be our movie climax? What's our Rommel? That would have to be the moment the USS Texas realized most of the Germans were too far inland to hit. The Allied troops still needed support. The Nazis needed to be pushed out of France, but the Texas was just out of range. So the captain ordered his own battleship compartments to be flooded. On June 15th, the other British and American battleships parked along the coastline watched as a ship the size of a small floating city began to list. Her starboard torpedo blister was flooded. The ship's hull tilted, forcing the men on deck to walk at a slight angle. And the 14-inch guns boomed for 
one more day. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. It's called a lot of things in business. Challenging your beliefs. Being open to opportunities. Realigning your focus. All these are fancy ways of saying making new options for yourself. But guess what? That's not what the human brain is wired to do. Human brains effectively evolved to develop one trade, live in one town, and iterate on their abilities within a well-defined framework. Cavemen hardly ever migrated. They hunted the same game all their lives. And they were rarely asked to develop 10 different resumes to highlight the best job skills for different hiring managers. That's our focus of today's episode and our myth today. Myth one. Geniuses like Warren Buffett say the key to success is saying no to almost everything. We're also told success is about creating more options. Can both of these philosophies coexist? Myth two. We're making lots of claims about the brain's inability to track moves in the game of life. But is there really a built-in limit? Myth three. Whether we're a ship at sea or a desk in the corner cubicle, how do we make a practice out of creating options? Is there a secret mental muscle to develop? I'm going to ask about a movie, and it's a bit old. Todd, have you ever seen the movie Half-Baked? I have not. Okay. <laughs> there is a... I've heard of it. It's got a cult following, right? Yeah. You you may have even seen the scene I'm about to talk about. There is a, a scene where one of the characters finally leaves his crappy uh, fast food job so that he can go sell, you know, uh, an extremely potent strain of weed full time. It's going to make him all the money. And so he, he is fed up with his job and he, he turns and he says, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, I'm out. And it's such a hilarious yet satisfying scene. I see it and I hear it whenever somebody like is about to be fired or they're, they're about to leave their job or just if they want to cut ties. It's, it's the idea that, that you're, you're going to work up to a point where you're able to tell people no and, and to walk out forever and it, it, to slam those doors behind you on places that you don't want to be anymore. I call this like um, you didn't just burn the bridge. You swam back across the river and kicked your boss in the head a few times. You want to make sure you won't be hired right. back at this job. <laughs> right. You're, not- You're burning your boats in battle. There, there will be no surrender. Right. That's, that's, not, that's not just burning the bridge. That's using C4. So um, now we, we kind of, as an introvert, that appeals to me. I, I want you to know that it feels better for me mentally to um, close doors behind me and to uh, tell people goodbye forever uh, when I leave work. Uh, like the, the menial jobs I've had, I've, I've never even thought about reaching back and contacting those people. Um, now, it's like the comedian that says, the, the comedian who says, what is this two-week notice stuff? So you're going to let me work here for two weeks, knowing I'm going to quit, 
and you're still going to pay me, you know I'm going to do a half-ass job if I'm <laughs> halfway out the door. <laughs> right. I've, um, I mean, like, it's funny you even say that. When I talk about, you know, closing doors behind you, I gave a two-week notice at one of my jobs, and they thanked me, and then two days after that, they fired me. Not because uh, I was doing a poor job, but just because they didn't want to take risks that I would, you know, harbor ill will or anything like that. So there are there are companies yeah, where even if you yeah. give them that loyalty, they will still sort of like throw sand in your face. I worked for years in auto finance, and it was a good job. And when you give your notice, you you have you're privy to a lot of in, information, social security numbers, um, financial stuff on the company. So when you you give your two week notice, and you know that they're going to cut you loose that second, like they literally come and snatch up your laptop, and you know. They do the men in black thing, rave the thing in your face. So you can't remember anything, but you get paid for those two weeks. So it's important that you still give your two right. weeks. <laughs> so it's your two weeks free pay. It's wonderful, you know. <laughs> right. Well, the, uh, the concept of today's episode, what we really want to talk about is I have started seeing a trend with my most successful friends. I do the half-baked thing where I, I tell everyone where they can shove it on my way out the door. Even if I'm going to be friends with them, I'll pick one person at work when I leave a job who I'm going to keep in contact with, and I add them to my my Christmas card list slash you know my my Discord channel so they can talk to me regularly. But that that kind of um, closed doors behind you, even if it's on people, jobs, resumes, old contacts, whatever it is, it, it can even be just emails or forums that you used to go to. I have started realizing that that is um, narrow and reductive thinking. And um, to define reductive, reductive is tending to present a subject or problem simplified. Like it it can also be thought of as crude. Is it though, is it a sign of maturity? For me personally, you know, I'm I'm a salesperson. I run on emotion only, no logic. Logic is out the window. And when you're in a toxic relationship, and a lot of those are work relationships, and you know, isn't it nice to have that fu up thing and say and burn that bridge? You know, especially with ex, you know, especially if they're you know romantic interests or whatever. You know, they're good, bad for you. <laughs> Don't you want to punch them one time before you leave? <laughs> isn't it worth it? Yes, I, I want to emotionally, definitely. And like movies have taught me that that's what geniuses do. Like if I if I follow what fiction, like 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 what the the docudramas of. Steve Jobs, or if I if I watch you know um, the social media, the movie, or or if I watch really anything about um, these troubled geniuses who start up companies and become amazing people, it it shows them closing doors on people. They do it in such interesting and like they usually say something very witty and very funny and very quick and absolutely cutting. Like they slay the other person socially before they walk out the door and they never talk to him again. But I'm starting to see in my real life how geniuses actually function. They, they don't do that. They, they will sort of sit back and watch somebody implode, like if, if they think that they're a hot mess. But they're not cutting people off left and right. They're not closing doors for their own comfort. When they check things off of a list, they keep the list around. Uh, um, when they you know finish a project, they, they keep things open. Like the, the geniuses I know... They embrace the discomfort of doors open behind them and windows, and then they make portholes. Draftiness and leaks be damned. They just keep everything open. 
And that, as an introvert, troubles my mind. Like, it, it actually hurts to watch, like, somebody putting puzzle pieces, you know, into the wrong slots on purpose. You're, you're suggesting maturity, and uh, I hate that term, emotional intelligence, but the long game, right? Yeah, I, long yeah game. the maturity. It's, it's a professional maturity that um, I don't think I will ever be used to or enjoy. <laughs> like, the... the well, the 1950s version. Your writing that circles, is, Joe. Yeah, go ahead. In your writing circles, Joe, too. I, I think that we we think that whatever business we're in is is a is an ocean. A lot of times they're not. They're swimming pools. Yeah. And you are going to have contact, and you are going to need these people, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. You're going to need them later, and they're going to need you as well. It's kind of a, a loss, loss, you know. Right. The the more busy you get in life and the more professional projects you are spinning at any one given time, the more you wish you had that person who had a very uninteresting, unimportant skill at the time. You wish you could tap them and just say, hey, could you do this for me? Because you're going to do it three times as fast as I can and better than I can. Um, what were you saying about the 50s? You you went back to the 50s there for a second. I cut you <laughs> off. Well, the, the simple like Mad Men 50s version of this is you just have like a list of people you send a bottle of whiskey every year. And if you're on that list of a hundred people you do that to, then that's, that's your, your network. But we're, we're far beyond that at this point. We're, we're into, you know, hundreds of friends on Facebook and thousands of friends on social media and stuff. So we, we want to also say that we are not necessarily describing social media. We're not saying you need to keep all your doors and windows open for social media. That's just asking to have your time burglarized, but in your real life and your professional life, I'm starting to see I'm going to I'm going to name drop somebody here. We got this episode concept because I was sort of watching how um, one of the friends of the show, Chris Wilkes, uh, treats people. And I mean that in a very positive way. I mean that, like, he keeps tabs on people and he messages them and it looks from the outside like it's it's exhausting. But I, I think people get used to it. You, Todd, since you've been in sales for so long how do you do that? Like, how do you, how do you do that without that being like your day job? Well, um, to touch on the Chris Wilkes thing, Chris Wilkes is a connector. You know, I go to a lot of his, his parties as you have as well, Joe. And it's funny. It seems like all his friends are just so pre-screened and so interesting. You think, how can there be this many interesting people at a party? And he networks and he, without social media, we're, we're going to have him on the show as a guest soon. He connects people who are experts in and i don't say genius though the genius word arrived but 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 the head of their fields and what they do you know and it's, it's really fun to be around and you just think this can't be easy to do to get all this kind of people together this consistently all the time right i i think that is maybe the secret hidden title of this episode is what the hell are connectors doing that i'm not doing but <laughs> we 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 actually do want to explore the the you know, what our mind is built for and, and why not everyone does this, why this isn't standard operating procedure for, for every type of brain. Um, you had a, you had a phrase in sales, didn't you? That like you, you said it to me in the car uh, a couple months back. He doesn't, he doesn't like me, but he knows me. <laughs> this, yeah, this is a very well known. What, what it means is I'll give you an example, Joe. Um, you've known someone you've worked with or known someone in your life, a friend, you've known for so long almost too long let's say someone think of someone that you've worked with for years and sometimes you work with somebody it becomes kind of like a marriage you can be kind of critical of them 
But when you have a lot of history with somebody, as humans, we get a natural trust. This is someone who dresses up and shows up. We know that. We would bet our life on that. We would count on Joe or Todd, this person we worked with. And what's nice about that is you don't like them, but you know them. Yeah. Is you know their strength and their weaknesses probably better than they do. And so when you're thinking of that next position, you are going to eliminate their weaknesses, but you think their benefits are going to be worth it. And that's why it's good to have and keep those doors open because even though they're not the favorite person, at least they know they can count on Joe. They know what they can get out of Joe, and that's very valuable in in relationships and in business. It's I have the, the perfect example of that. Um, when I was working in side gigs in law enforcement, I was doing sort of odd jobs, and I met a guy who was um, – I worked with him for years. He was a, a ex-cop, and he worked in investigations, and – he was the worst person to work with. Like, like I worked with him for years. He was always a curmudgeon. He was always sort of like stiff lipped. Nobody around him did the job as well as they should. You know, he, he barely spoke a, a kind word toward his coworkers, but was extraordinarily patient and kind with, you know, outside clients and anybody who was coming through the door. And I, I remember thinking like, I would never sit and have lunch with this guy. But the moment we went to sort of training, uh, f- like outside training, like, like, we were surrounded by 100 people we didn't know from different aspects of different fields. Suddenly we're sitting together and I'm like, I'd, I'd prefer to hang out with this guy. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd prefer to hang out with the curmudgeon who I know and I know all their strengths and weaknesses rather than, you know, uh, you know, introduce myself to 100 new people and possibly have to work with them and not know what they're, they're going to bring to the table. You really don't, and and uh, boss I had a long time ago who I hated. This guy got on my nerves. He said this quote, and I and I don't I don't like anything that he believes in, but this is, turned out to be so true. He said, "When you hire somebody, you're hiring their home life, whether you like it or not," and that's just so true. Yeah. So, can we talk about like what are the limits of your brain? And it, like we're just going to sort of like very quickly go through here are the how many things you can keep in mind, how many people you can keep in mind. Like like we want to get to, you know, what what are the um, what are the benchmarks of our our brain's processing power first, so we know what the limits are before we get into you know how do you do this? How do you do this constant connecting? So what you're talking about is is how many friends we can have on Facebook, how many people we could remember their names how many relationships we can juggle right if we're not chris wilkes if we're normal people right if we are <laughs> if we are ordinary mortals <laughs> and we have to actually go up and and yeah we, we, it takes us time to memorize people's names and, and what they're about um do you remember the episode where we talked about uh dunbar's number I do. It stuck with me. I, if I remember, it's it's a number. I, I remember somewhere around one hundred forty dollars. Yeah, it's 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 about one hundred fifty, um, give or take. Uh, but the idea is that uh, all social primates have a upper limit of how many people they can keep in their mind. Um, and when I say people, I, I don't mean like a thousand people on your Facebook list where you can remember their name and roughly what their you know what their personality is like. It's more about like they occupy a space in your mind as a full entity. Like you have a sense of them emotionally. You can remember their face. You can connect their name to it. 
Um, you you know a couple things about their family. Um, and and Dunbar talked about how it's about 150. If you get too high above that, you start having to like offices, uh, corporate offices split at around 150. Like when they go over that number uh, to keep things streamlined and to keep things working, you know, connected well with within the inside, they split uh, above 150. They they usually stay around that number. Same thing with um, close knit communities. If you look at like Amish and Mennonite communities, they naturally kind of like split off into you know two communities to to keep it around that number or or lower. Um, and Robin Robin Dunbar, just so everybody knows, is a is a, a very brilliant British psychiatrist who's like, a specialist, yeah, like a primate in, researcher, in, like in, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's an expert in behavior. He's studied it his whole life, you know, and. And uh, he's worth listening to, right? Right. So that that has uh, Dunbar's number. I've I've been hip to that since cracked. Uh, jokingly referred to it as the monkey sphere, um, and that has given me an excuse throughout my entire life now to only really keep track of about 150 people at once. And after that, I, I just throw up my hands. I'm like, well, it's outside my Dunbar number. Mm-hmm. Like, like I I don't have the capacity for that. <laughs> um, I, I make cuts. I make cuts all the time. I yeah. love cutting people out of my. <laughs> I said you are you are dead to me. You are no longer important enough for me to remember you. Who you are. Yeah, I'll be like, I'm sorry. You were 161, so you are. Yeah, you're, you are. Out. You're not as cute as you used to be. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> now, if if we want to keep track of small things, um, we we can only like say in our working memory, meaning like our immediate, you know, eyes in front of us memory. Like if we want to memorize a phone number or if we want to think of, you know, how many tasks we have to do in this immediate moment. There's, you know, you're, you're, you're cooking in the kitchen and you have to do 10 things to get dinner ready. How many things can you immediately put your hands on and think of in that moment? Um, how many multitasks can you actually multitask? Um, and that number, according to Life Science, is about three or four. You can jump quickly to you know higher numbers you can you can you can completely put your attention on a different group of tasks but you can only do you can only keep track uh parallel of about three or four different tasks or numbers or 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 subjects um in fact when it comes to like phone numbers and stuff um there's a reason why phone numbers are capped at like seven numbers (laughs) because we generally can't remember strings of things that well either unless we like use a mnemonic device or or something so Generally speaking, um, it, the reason why we have sort of limits on how many people we communicate with and why it feels good to get rid of things, like not just people, but why it feels good to cross something off of your to-do list, why it feels good to stop cooking, like like when you finally put the fish in the pan and the, the only thing to do now is wait for it to sear so that you can serve it. The reason why it feels good to narrow your options I mean, like, you literally, your brain gives you a reward for it. You get a little bit of dopamine when you complete stuff. Is because it takes mental effort to do these things, to, to keep simultaneous people or tasks in mind. It actually takes processing power, and your brain is an efficient machine. It, it wants to limit that. Like, it, it wants to burn less calories, do things more efficiently. Um, so we don't, by default, create options. Like, we don't go through life creating options... That's how you get errand fatigue, um, which uh, also known as uh, option paralysis, choice overload. Um, basically, uh, Todd and I had an errand fatigue episode, and 
it was all about how if you keep too many bills in the air or, or how companies basically capitalize on our limited processing power. You yeah, you can't read every small print. You can't. It's impossible. Yeah. You, there's not enough time in the day and you don't have the energy. Does some of the lesson in this creating options to Joe based on if you have a very, very needy, toxic partner work problem? I mean, can that really drain? Can one person drain down your number and just sewer and soil your, your relationships because you're putting so much time thinking and working with someone who's difficult? Oh, absolutely. So um, I'm not going to speak for anybody, but I, I've noticed the connectors in my life who are good at being connectors, they seem to pick people, like you said, not only uh, do they do what you know, our, our friend Chris Wilkes does, where they pick people who look like they're you know, professionals or they're operating at, at, a, a, you know, at the top of their field, they also pick people who are low maintenance or, or people who are, are not going to absolutely absorb their attention and, and their resources which that sounds like it is a Machiavellian play. Like it's <laughs> like, like pick people who aren't going to drain you too much. But honestly, you can't be a connector at that level without doing that. You have to vet people who are not going to um, become part of your errand paralysis. Um, well, how do you, how do you do that, Joe? Joe's very sought after to help. And, you know, and I've abused him a bit on that and on referring him with friends and stuff to, to, to work on presentations, speeches, just overall communication Joe always likes to help people. He's a fixer, you know. He's a know-it-all. But how do you say no to people, <laughs> Joe? Because you get you get more. You can't help everybody. I guarantee there's more people in line, and it's not can't be easy. Um, I have like stages, and this this I've always kind of blamed on being an introvert, but now I'm starting to see that professionals generally do this. If it is something where they want advice. I will give them resources. Like I'll, I'll cut aside a small bit of time, 30 minutes to an hour, and I'll have lunch with them and I'll, I'll talk to them and I'll see what they're up to and what they're about and what they're working on. Um, but after that, the, the way it usually goes is they will either have something concrete they want help with or they want to be my friend and they want time. Um, I try to limit my interactions to mammoth hunting. I will tell people, you know, if you have a mammoth to slay, if if we are going after a game, I will definitely jump in and help. Um, you know, there's only so many, like, projects people can work on, speeches they can give, stories they can write. So that actually helps me limit how much time I give out. Um, if somebody comes to me with a short story they want to bring into a contest, I'll give them an hour to sort of, like, talk it out with them and outline and figure out where it's going and, and how to structure it. Same thing with a speech. This is going to sound so maybe egotistic of me to say, but um, not a lot of people that I've met want to actually do the work. So when I say, you know, uh, hey, I'm going to be here for the next project you work on, go ahead and call on me. Um, not a lot of people actually take me up on that. Uh, the people who do, we we end up working on really interesting, amazing stuff. I mean, like when I talk about, you know... Um, working on like city planning stuff not working on but like advising on minutia of and when i talk about you know um, meeting people who are like in agriculture or or chatting with people who are going to toastmasters that's always how it is is they actually have taken me up on my offer and we end up working on something interesting or strange 
Joe's been trying to fade me out for four years, and I'm still fucking here, man. That's because you keep taking me up on my offers. Every time I'm like, yeah, let's, wish, let's write a book. Or you wish I would quit. Yeah. Sure, when you work on a speech, let's do something. And then every time you come back with an actual thing to work on. So I'm like, okay, I got to change my policy. <laughs> how do you do it? Like, like, how do you limit your, your interactions? Or do you? Like, you're, you're, you have so many friends. I, I can't imagine... Do you have like a structured set of how much time you give people? Um, I do. I I think I hand them off a lot. Right now, I'm in the process of. I'm very proud of. I've probably introduced um, to date about seven married couples, and I got a couple that are that are probably closing in on that. So, I, I, right the other day, I was talking to a very attractive woman, and I and she was talking about being single, and I said, you know, I have a lot of friends who are handsome and rich and tall and she's such you're gonna introduce me and i said yes i will you know so i think that's a lot of it i try to kind of blend my my friend group together because i have found that i kind of think of it like you know like a school teacher um the problem a school teacher has you know you have 30 students in your class you, you got two bright brilliant students and you got two misbehaved students and, th and they get all your attention so i try to to limit my time because i just have to preserve my energy you know, but but I still want everybody on my team or in my inner circle to feel loved. So it's it's tough. It's not easy. It, it it takes constant effort. You do it how people do when they have a misbehaving dog. Like you 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 see that your pet wants all of your attention, and so you're like, I'll just get him another pet. I'll get him somebody to. I'll get a second <laughs> dog to keep him busy. <laughs> I guess so. I never thought of it like that. <laughs> so. Okay, when you're when you're working on projects, like ongoing, do you do you try to put them to bed? Like, are do you go for the satisfaction of like crossing things off your list? You know, even if it's just like I do. you're tangentially related, like they're not necessarily yours, but they're you know you're tied to it. I I I'm, I respect in others people who see things all the way through, who complete tasks. And I don't like to start things unless I know I'm going to finish them. So it's easier for me to say no to something. And I've gotten better at that. Or just avoiding it, being avoidant, than not seeing it all the way through. I, I just, I, I want to be a closer. I want to be a finisher. You know, I, you know, the big thing that Joe and I work on is speeches. And the nice thing about a speech is when you have a deadline, you've got to make it. If, if you have a book deadline or a writing deadline, um, deadlines at work are easy. On creative projects and things you do outside of work, where there's not a boss or, or a customer telling you have to do it, paying you, you have to be disciplined. Yeah. And it helps to have a deadline, not because it puts pressure on you necessarily, but because there is now going to be a time where this project is over. Like, like <laughs> whether you succeed or not, this will be crossed off your list, which, which for me, like you said, closing, it feels nice. Like that's... Progress. Progress is... Yeah. Progress is everything, Joe. Would you believe it if I told you that um, satisfaction, uh, um, if you make a decision, especially about like a project or a person, if it is reversible, it makes us less happy? Really? I would think it would be the opposite. I would think that, you know, if you if you buy a vase that being able to bring it back at any time and, and get the one you actually wanted or, or to change your mind, that would make us 
more satisfied, like having options, being able to reverse, like like being able to undo the mortgage yeah. you just got, or like undo. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna the marriage. Yeah, like <laughs> like that's, like how that's what everyone's thinking. How big can I, we I go? undo this relationship? Yeah. So that that's or even, or even what you studied in college, even what you studied, what you majored in, and what you got a career. And you're like, I shouldn't have done this. I should have tried something else. I should have been a teacher, right? Not a nurse. You would think that, you know, we would like reversible decisions, but um, I found a, a study that we're going to link off to about photography students, uh, and the study basically tested them to show that like they can um, they can keep a print like a, of what they had done or what somebody else had done. Like they get to pick a print to, to keep in their home, to hang it up. And people who had the opportunity to change their minds with their prints, um, they were less satisfied. So like they would pick the one they want just like the other students. But if they were able to change their minds, whether or not they did change their mind, they would, they would take it home regardless. If they knew that they could change their mind, they were less satisfied. The people who had to pick once and stick with it, they actually were more satisfied. They they reported more satisfaction because they had to like it was theirs. Like like, I think that is the the big, the the big separation here in our minds is we actually don't want the decision so much afterward. We want a thing to be owned by us, and that includes, you know, uh, goals, projects, people. Like like, <laughs> if it's not reversible, then we own it. We have to like we we have to add that to our narrative personally. There's something to be said for that. You know, every time you pass, you know, the academics, they get another letter or initials by their name, right? Right. You, you don't take that. You don't lose that. You'll always be doctor. You know, you they can't take that away from you. <laughs> if that was reversible and you could get rid of letters and add other ones to it, that, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> inmate, inmate number 1265. Right. <laughs> I guess you can, but. But overall, they stick with you till you die. They They'll do. be on your obituary that that you were a published best-selling author. Yeah, that that that'll that'll be on your obituary someday. Joe. <laughs> someday. So, have you, when you drive home, how much does your brain go on autopilot? By the way, always. Sometimes I don't even realize. I mean, I drive so much that I just it's just a pattern. I don't even sometimes I don't think I'm even watching the road. Yeah. Are you? I, I do it with walking, with driving. I do it with um, going room to room. Like, honestly, because uh, uh, I blame writing, but now I'm starting to just think it might be brains in general. <laughs> I, I used to think that because I was always so focused on writing fantasy and coming up with stories and thinking about movies and, and what plots didn't work, I never see my environment around me truly. Like, I, I can enjoy walking in nature and I can enjoy seeing things around me and, and being in a comfortable space and in, in my house. But my brain is on autopilot all the time. And I think, I, I deeply suspect this is part of the reason why we don't create options everywhere we go. Our, our mind wants to be as efficient as possible. We don't have the processing power to recognize everything on the street as we drive down it, especially if we've been there a hundred times. So our, our, our brains tune those things out, simplify things, and let us sort of like dissolve into this like like daydreaming kind of state. Have you ever had this word? It's a, it's a neighborhood that you frequent. I mean, you know, it like the back of your hand. And then a friend will take you to a restaurant and, and it's in a subdivision or, you know, a business park. 
the food is wonderful and you're like why have i never even noticed this restaurant you never saw the sign i mean you've driven past it thousands of times and you just never ever saw it it's just not in your brain pattern so we're we're predisposed to save calories and simplify our life right and not just keep looking 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 for everything and try to pay attention to every single sign sentence person we can't we gotta we gotta right and if you go around creating options as sort of a matter of like professional habit you undo that like like you pull on that tapestry of unconscious autopilot and you unwind it and the reason why is because if you are talking to somebody who you like if if you have 300 people on your contact list and every time you go out to lunch you bring somebody or talk to somebody you haven't spoken to in months that every single time you do that that is a new experience that is forcing you to pay attention forcing you to be connected and engaged every time you you take on something else that is you know not in your normal day to day like you you're ruining that autopilot and i hate it and i wish we would stop trying to do it on this podcast todd you've dragged me into something (laughs) um also i find it interesting that like uh of all of the stories that we kept running into of like when we looked for a narrative of here are people who found just absolutely wild unconventional solutions that exists everywhere there's there's not you know it's not like we're saying that doesn't exist in medicine or or you know, being a lawyer or something like any, any profession you look into, regardless, you're going to find people who are extraordinarily skilled at finding unconventional solutions and, and finding new ways to operate. But for some reason we kept gravitating because I think it's because I've read too much about world war two, but the things people did to overcome like, like obstacles, I mean, like our opening narrative is about you know the the USS Texas flooding its own tanks or flooding its own deck to make the ship start tilting so they could shoot farther which is just madness like that's <laughs> straight up it's crazy um yeah the, the, and for the captain to make that call you know yeah the USS T- Texas um think about it flooding its own ship so it could tilt and get in shallower water so it could attack i mean that's the leadership is making that call and you would think that the crew would have been like, are you crazy? You know? Yeah. (laughs) It is the money and lives at stake. The stakes are very high. Seeing, Um, seeing the German frontline fleeing deeper into France and being like, there sure are a lot of Germans out there and I sure wish we could still drop bombs on them after having done this for two days. (laughs) What if we, we're sinking <laughs> like it sounds it like a drunk person's sense. logic it does and also um you, we know the history of the barb which is a famous submarine um it was ran by captain flunky and and swish sanders was the co-captain or uh, the second in charge and the barb has an amazing amazing history um some of its wins it used to be that submarines before the barb would just sit and wait um but like the barb started being yeah it started being more aggressive um they wouldn't lay in wait it would attack it was aggressive um one time it surfaced underneath a japanese boat and snapped it in half can you, can you think of that <laughs> that is yeah and 
That's funny. And it was one of the first. They've always used torpedoes on submarines, which is which is the you know that goes through the water. We know what torpedoes are, but the the barb was one of the first one to start using rockets, and start attacking. It actually even sunk a Japanese train <laughs> a moving target of a japanese train which was only done once in history and it was in world war ii now the captain flunky we've, we've studied him we have what was that other episode we did about flunky what was the topic of it what was the take uh entourages and it was how he had like built his team to do all these wild unconventional things like i mean like like he literally rewrote the book about submarine warfare before this they were kind of like a neat tool that the military used to like catch ships that were unawares while they like waited at the bottom of the ocean. Flucky made them into a full, a full tool of war. And we covered an entire episode on it because his, his crew was insane. Like the people doing this were crazy. They were, and they were, so this is the thing. He was a huge big time planner. So he surrounded before he, he took over the barb as, um, as the captain he worked on different kinds of ships. So he, he knew the limitations of different ships. So as he, in his career, he worked on battleships and, and aircraft carriers. He plucked the perfect men, not the, the high in ranking. He got his best people, and he hired them and got them to work for him on the bar. He ended up sinking more Japanese ships than any other submarine because he had a gr- dream team of officers and enlisted men. Now, most submarine captains, they only got four tours, Joe. That was the limit. That was the government limit. That was the U.S. limit. Flucky got five. Now, usually you want to quit while you're still, we say quit while you're ahead, quit while you're still alive, right? Right. If we're talking about (laughs) war captains. But you think of what an honor that is to be, I'm the only captain that got five tours. And he was doing dangerous missions. He was more aggressive than most. So he was cheating death (laughs) with him and his men. More than most. In the in the book, it talks about the bets he would make. He'd come back to the Admiralty, and they'd be like, "How many ships you get?" And he's like, eight. And these, and they're like, oh, "It wasn't nine, though." And and he'd say, "No, no, I'm gonna get more." And every time he went out, his tours would be longer and longer, and he would get more enemy ships. It was, yeah, it 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 felt like reading a a adventure novel. It was crazy. Well, one of his greatest compliments, I think, came from the, the Japanese from the enemy at the time. Um, their leadership said they were sure that they were being attacked by at least six vessels, but it turns <laughs> out it was it was only the barb. Yeah. <laughs> it was raining hell, raining hell on them, and it was such a famous um, ship and such and such famous results from all the wins. Everyone loves a winner. Well, FDR and Ted Roosevelt, two presidents, both kept tabs on on the barb and wanted to know about what it was doing at all times because they was just they were big fans. Oh yeah, they were fanboys. Now, not the most important thing about them was not only that they had more successful battle missions. They had more dangerous missions than everyone. Joe, they didn't lose one life. Their whole crew was intact for their whole naval career during World War II, which is which is unheard of. It's a very dangerous business. Now, what kind of broke my heart about this is this, uh, and I know it's just uh, the barb sold when it was decommissioned. It sold for $100,000, okay? Now, I think this thing should be honored. I think this should be in Washington, D.C. 
at some big monument right next to Abraham Lincoln <laughs> or FDR. Just to give you some context for that, today, if you were to build a nuclear sub, one nuclear sub costs $3 billion. So I think it's worth it for 100 k for us to have this on display and, and tell the history of, of why we're not speaking German and Japanese in this country anymore. We're speaking English. Right. Who's, who bought the barb? I mean, like, I know why somebody <laughs> would want to buy it, but who owns it now? Do you happen to know that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe it's one of the drug cartels or something that runs <laughs> cocaine up to. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that would be a movie. Like that. That would be yeah, somebody captaining the barb, this extraordinarily heroic ship, and yeah, now they're running yeah drugs in it or something leaky. Um. So there is when I went looking for first, I went looking for science of how do we become better connectors. How do we keep options open? Like, how do we how do we make a constant mental practice of keeping our options open in a way that is like professionally mature? And first, I went science, and then I went philosophy because I wanted to know, you know, how how do people do this throughout history? One of the answers um, that you might encounter is Buddhism. There are a lot of warm, fuzzy, comfortable Buddhist sayings. Uh, like, you know, challenge your ideas about how things should work or look for opportunities in tough situations. Um, and a lot of Buddhism is about open-mindedness and, and keeping things in the air. But that's not as practical day-to-day as what I was looking for. <laughs> um, so instead, I turned toward psychologist Albert uh, Bandura, um, who just talks about self-efficiency. And they believe that, you know... Um, when you're creating options, believe you're going to get there and acknowledge yourself and everyone else that uncertainty involves having to experiment and get things right. That sentiment there kind of started reconstructing my brain with how to create options. Like I, I see, you know, professionally adept connectors in my life. They don't look uncertain to me. You know, they don't look like the people who would let an email uh, sit unread for six months and then look at it and say, oh my God, I forgot to get back to them. They don't look like the type of person who will like get a text and then put their phone down and then go answer that text, you know, <laughs> a week later. Uh, that's me, by the way. I'm describing how bad I am at being a connector and how bad I am at keeping my options open. But the idea is that, you know, if you if you think about your practice of creating options, more about an exercise, it's it's more like you are creating options as an exercise day to day and less about, you know, being so wired tight that you're constantly, uh, you know, answer your emails right away, answer your texts right away, get everything correct. It, yeah. It's less about being correct. It's more about the exercise of opening yourself up to options and, and trying to communicate with people as often as you can. I think you're open that this is a good point, Joe, about communication. And how do you feel if someone doesn't respond to your email for, a few weeks or a few days, do you feel that they're so important that they're doing other things or do you feel devalued that you're not? And then how do you walk that line? Sometimes I'm over polite and getting back to people too fast to the point that I rush the information that I'm getting back to them and I don't think it all the way through because I'm afraid that they're going to think that they're not important to me because I didn't get back to them right away. How do you balance and manage that? Right. Because we all have different rules, right, for when to respond to a text and, you know, 
and you don't want someone to feel unloved or unthought or uncared for or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, um, I don't want to like out myself as being very, very, very old. I used to read etiquette books from like the peerage age, and it would be like you're only supposed to attend parties 45 minutes after they start, and it's not being rude. It's it's showing that you have high value, and and it's because you want to give the host plenty of time to like set up the party as it's going. Like, like I I I went through my sort of like OCD adult life with these ideas like an introvert thinking that you could just follow a code or a or a rubric or a, a series of actions like 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 somebody had like you know computer coded me to to do things correct socially and the better way to sort of put your mind into it is is something a Harvard Business Review calls it construal construal is thinking that your actions have um bigger meaning or purpose than what you're actually doing. So for me, what I'm thinking of is I just need to answer my damn emails and my texts and I need to call people who have contacted me and I make a list out of it and I mentally just go through and tick those boxes. What I should be doing is I should be construing them as something that serves a higher purpose, which is I am creating a support network in my life and I am making sure that people know I'm the resource that you know, that I'm available as a resource to them, especially if I like them. Um, and that goes for everything. Like any options you create in life, you should use construal. You should try to think of it as not that you're throwing doors open and making your life more hectic and that you are giving yourself air and fatigue. You should think of it as, you know, voting is just ticking a box and hoping policy gets changed. Instead, think of it as I'm participating in democracy and I'm hopefully part of the outcome. Or, you know, uh, we're in our in our example of the USS Texas, they could have just thought we're just lobbing exploding shells at the enemy to make them run. But what they actually thought of is we're liberating occupied France by giving our troops one more day of artillery cover. Like there's there's always a construal way uh, uh, to think about things. If you construe things in a, a, you know, more action oriented, more inspired, more motivated way you can start opening options all over the place and it doesn't feel fatiguing. It, it doesn't make you feel dread like I have when I look back at my unresponded text messages. I'm glad that adequate book, book helped you. I could just see you sipping tea and walking with a book around your head, walking around the house <laughs> practicing. <laughs> but, but, but I think you're right, Joe. I think what I've been hearing you say too is, is you're focused on winning the reward the dopamine and the the connection, right? You have to kind of create that carrot too, I think, and not look at it as like a chore, but look at it as a connection. Yeah, and and feel okay about having things stay open. Like one of um, you and I, we've talked on this podcast about hospital debt and how we're going to have an episode, in fact, about just how much this country runs off debt in general of all types. Um, but I think I told you once that I was uncomfortable because I owed the hospital a bunch of money and I paid them because I needed to cross them off my list. Like it was causing me stress and, you know, I, I needed to have that box checked. But what ended up happening is I, I messed myself up badly because my union was going to fight them. Like my union was getting ready to, to pay them, but also to, to battle with them about how much they were charging. And if I just let my insurance and my union slug it out, like, 
like Godzilla fighting Mothra, it would have been fine. Like I would have just sat back and let them do it. Instead, I, I ended up costing myself a tremendous amount of money because I needed to have that checked off my list. Um, have you ever burned any bridges or settled up when it was satisfying but unnecessary? I have. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we talked about earlier, you, you burn bridges and and then in time... It it seems to, it seems to heal a little bit. People will romanticize or misremember the tough times. I, I think that they kind of give you a pass and they forgive. But my advice for anybody younger than me in a corporate world or in any relationships, um, I like to do the the work stuff, um, money because I like money we can measure. Connections hard to measure and, and friends, and loved ones are it's hard to really put that in a box, right? Um, right, but I, I don't want you to ever burn any bridges and I want to keep options open in business and I'll tell you why it isn't just the hiring managers and that's who we usually put our focus on. That's usually where lots of our pain is from and that's where we put a lot of our hate and you know the, the F you were him out the door, but I can honestly tell you how you act and how you behave and how you connect with your coworkers. I promise you, Joe, you're going to be shocked at how many of those are the next hiring managers and the next business owners and the next CEOs. It's the people you work with, the very average Andes and average Ashleys that end up being bosses that someday you're going to need a job from. You're going to need something from. And they're going to need you because they might not like you, but they know you. And they're not going to remember your work, right. Joe, as much as they're going to remember your attitude. Settling a dispute, reaching a goal, deleting old emails, paying off old debts. We get a lot of satisfaction from shutting doors and completing our checklist. Humans are natural, reductive thinkers. We like to close our case files as often as possible, not open new ones. But there are gifted folks out there who are capable of more Buddhist-like approach to work and relationships. People who keep their contact list open. People open doors as they wander the hallways of life instead of closing them. We're not suggesting you stop being a completeness or that you leave mountains of work untouched. But sometimes we could be more like the captain of the USS Texas. If we see a goal that's just out of reach, we should squint, tilt our head, and ask, what are my other options? You've been listening to the Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm.